your team is failing to deliver. What do you do? Well, a friend of mine got this question in a product manager interview recently. How would you answer this? Well, this is episode 142 of The Secrets of Product Management. And in this episode, we're going to talk about what to do about a failing team. And note that throughout the rest of this episode, failing will always be in air quotes, even though you can't see me, just trust me on this. But first, let me talk to you about my weekly Secrets of Product Management meetup. This is a meetup for product managers, anybody who's interested. It happens on Friday morning, specific time at 8 a.m. If you'd like to attend, it's free. Go to secretsofpm.com slash meetup and get on the notification list. That's all I use that list for. What do we talk about in this meetup? Basically, whatever people want to talk about. Sometimes I come up with a theme and we talk about the theme. Sometimes I come up with a theme and we don't talk about the theme at all. It can totally vary. Recently, we did a really fun lean coffee, which is a methodology that I learned from Chris Butler, who was on the podcast uh, about six or eight months ago. And you'll have to come and attend to see what, how a lean coffee works or what it is, or you can look it up at leancoffee.org. Again, that's secretsofpm.com slash meetup, and you can get on the notification list. And if you are thinking, how can I improve my product manager skills and start having more impact in my work and in my career, it might be time to talk to me about my 12-week coaching program, which I call Product Manager Grad School. It's a personalized tutorial and coaching program where you'll learn and apply the types of power skills I talk about on this podcast, from storytelling and persuasion to the minimum viable product knowledge that's critical for successful go-to-market to the specific tools you need to crush your day-to-day challenges. Very personalized, very powerful stuff. Go to pmgradschool.com to sign up for a free consultation call or coaching session. That's at pmgradschool.com. And now let's get on with the episode. First of all, what does failing mean? And remember, I'm using our quotes. Well, I th- think there's multiple ways that a team can be failing. First of all, it might just not be competent to build what's needed. So this might be due to a lack of domain knowledge or it might be due to a simple lack of skill. I also think this is a relatively rare failure mode for most startups. They typically are going to get developers who are skilled enough to do the things that need to be done. The second way the team might be failing is they might not be motivated to build the thing or the things that need to be built. And the symptoms here might be that they don't perform well or they work on other things, which are not the things you want them to work on, resulting in, oh, failure because they're not delivering the things you want. Another great way to get the team to fail is to overwork them. And this is probably the most common route to team failure. If a team is well-motivated, they can perform kind of with afterburners on, meaning doing a death march type of thing, for a little while, possibly maybe a quarter, three months, without exploding. But you can't go much longer than that. You know, a team can really only go as fast as it can go. And if you force them to go faster for too long, they will start failing, not just at individual things, but at everything. Every system will start breaking if they're trying to do too much, or in particular, if they're being asked to do too much. Other ways to fail, well, fear is a great way to put your team into failure mode. A team in fear is not likely to be doing their best work. What might they be afraid of? Well, criticism or mockery. You know, developers are people too, and if they're being made fun of, they're going to be just as demotivated as you probably would be if you were being made fun of. Of course, the ultimate fear, being fired or losing their jobs, And 
the reality is that often you can find the fear in combination with overwork. Now, there might be other modes of failure as well, but those are the three or four big ones. And you can see that each of these sort of has a different root cause. I did want to talk about one other failure mode, which is when the team is actually trying to do something that's impossible. And this is the team not being able to deliver on a particular thing that's needed, um, whether it's just too hard for them to build or it maybe is actually literally impossible to build. It can arise for multiple reasons. So it might actually be impossible to build the thing. I've had customer requests for impossible features before, and luckily never had to get my team to try to build it. I could usually talk the customer down by sort of pointing out how impossible it was. But if you commit to a customer or a prospect or to an executive to build something that's impossible, you can't avoid failing in that case because it's impossible. You can't do it. And so you will fail to deliver, and that means that you will fail in the eyes of whoever it was you committed to. Even in this case, there might be some things you can do, but they never involve building the impossible thing, of course. They, maybe you can build something that delivers on part of the request, some non-impossible subset of the version of the request. It's also possible that the team just doesn't have the technical capability. And this can sometimes be the case when the technology that's needed is new or specialized, and your team just doesn't have that knowledge or skill yet. And I can imagine right now a lot of companies are struggling with getting AI into their products because not everybody has the skills to do AI, and but most of them probably can learn those things. They just haven't learned them yet. And then the other impossible way to, ha to have something impossible is where the scope or scale of the functionality is too large for the team's capacity or for the time frame or for the resource cost, whatever it might be. You know, perhaps it was underestimated initially and it turns out to be much harder than originally thought. This can happen, especially when doing something that's sort of highly innovative, since that a lot involves a lot of unknowns. You know, a skilled team is likely to know in advance if a feature will have that characteristic, but the fact about unknown unknowns is that they are not known in advance. They are unknown. And I can give, there's lots of examples of this in the real world. I always like to use the example of the Sydney Opera House in Australia. The Sydney Opera House was originally designed as part of a much bigger project. It was supposed to be built in three years at a cost of X amount of dollars. I don't remember the exact number of dollars. The design that they approved was very innovative, and it cost three times as much to build. They only built the first part of it. There was, as I say, supposed to be multiple other buildings built as part of the project, and it took them three times longer to build than originally planned. And this is building something in the real world where the laws of physics apply, which you might think, I always assume, that makes things more likely to be estimatable than if you're talking software where the laws of physics don't apply. In that case, the scope and scale of the original project was just far bigger than was actually achievable, particularly given the design that they chose. So what can you do about these things? Well, there's some things that pretty much never work. <laughs> Reminding the team of their commitments. You know, they made these commitments and their sprint planning and whatever. They made the commitments to the executives. I made commitments as the product manager, so don't you know, take care of me, whatever. That almost never works to bring the team out of failure. Another thing that usually doesn't work, starting to monitor the metrics more closely. The metrics probably reflect some aspect of reality, but just monitoring them is not going to fix the reality. Bringing in an Agile coach because, oh, obviously we're not doing Agile right because the team is not delivering. Well, typically the problem is not that the team is not doing Agile right, even if they aren't. 
that's not usually a root cause of failure because agile gets you a little faster, maybe if you do it right, but it doesn't change a team from being a failing, a failing team to being a successful team. That's usually caused by some other problem. Um, another thing that sometimes happens, move everybody around to new managers or fire the managers and bring in new ones or fire the team and bring in a new one or fire half the team and, and tell the remaining members that their jobs depend on picking up the slack. So we've heard this happen recently at a very big company that we all know, and it's not clear yet how that's worked out. If it does work out, then that guy is a unicorn, as we all know. He probably is a unicorn. Even so, I don't expect it to work in the end. Okay, so what do you do then? Well, first of all, you obviously have to do some kind of an assessment. Figure out why is the team failing, again, air quotes. What is the metric of failing, anyway? What are the results of this failure? What does this level of failure lead to from a business perspective? So, you know, a temporary failure of the team can mean that the product can't be sold because it's got something missing, but more often the product is out there, it can be sold, and the failure means that some desired capabilities aren't out there yet, so we just have to continue to sell the old thing, which is presumably still perfectly good until we address this problem. You know, this is still a problem, but it's a different level of problem than not being able to sell the product at all. So you have to assess that. Figuring out what the failure mode is by doing this assessment, again, you're gonna, it's going to be competence or motivation, overwork, fear, impossibility. Those are the options that I talked about. Let's set aside competence since that's hardly ever the real cause of failure, again, in air quotes. That next gets us to motivation. Now, in episode 316, I talked about motivating your development team. And it's actually a common complaint of product managers. My team isn't motivated. Why? But we have tools, and it's our responsibility to fix it generally. We have to be better at motivating. In fact, it's a fundamental skill of product managers. If you think about it, persuasion and influence, part of that is motivation. And in episode, as I say, 316, I give a way to think about motivating developers. The bottom line is you have to make sure they know why they're working on something. You can't just hand them a thing and say, do this. You need to give them some reason to get engaged with it. And in any case, you can't motivate the team to go faster than they can go, at least not for long, as I mentioned earlier in the comment about afterburners. But you should ensure the team knows the why of what you've asked them to build. And a good way to do that is to tell them about the pain the prospect is going through because they don't have the feature. And of course, this is the fundamental component of a great story, as well as great motivation. And you know that I have multiple podcast episodes about storytelling and how really surfacing the pain is a fundamental component of being a good storyteller. It's also a fundamental component of being a good motivator. Maybe the reason the team is failing is because they haven't been properly motivated. That can sometimes be the root cause of the team not delivering what's expected. The much more likely case is that the team is overworked in some way. So what can you do about overwork? Well, first of all, you need to understand what's happening. There's usually a lot of symptoms, and people will often tell you. So you have to use empathy and listen. And then you have a few things you need to do. In practical terms, you must reduce the amount of work somehow because, again, teams can't do more work than they can do. They have a capacity. It's like my Honda Accord can go a certain number of miles per hour, and it can't go any faster than that, no matter how much I wish it would, or no matter how much my boss says, oh, you need to complete this trip in half the time that you can complete it in. Not that my boss would tell me that I have to do that uh, in a car. That's a weird metaphor, honestly. But the point is, my Honda Accord can go a certain speed. It can't go faster than that. 
even in fact, even if I trick it out, it still can't go a lot faster. It can go a little bit faster, but it can't beat a Formula One race car, right? That's never going to happen. That's just the realities of my Honda Accord. There's nothing I can do to it to make it go as fast as a Formula One race car. Back to the point, in practical terms, you need to reduce the amount of work that the team has because they can only do as much work as they can do. And if you give them more, they will fail. And so this might be moving features out of the plan or reducing scope or extending timelines or simplifying features. That's always a great thing to do as a product manager. You might get have a big feature and you, that might take, oh, this is going to take us months to build. And you might be able to look at that and say, oh, you know what? We can build the basics of this feature in a month or in two months instead of six months. And then we'll put it out in the market and see if anybody even cares about the things we didn't build. You will have to do a lot of good persuasion and tap dancing to sell this to outsiders because you've just reduced the scope. Of course, the alternative is failure, and that's actually really helpful for you from a persuasion standpoint because you can paint the terrible picture. We're failing and we will go under if we don't make these changes to manage the work that we've allocated a little bit better. So you have a plan for less work. That's part one of addressing the overwork problem. The other thing you need to do is work on building psychological safety on the team. Part of how they got here was that they didn't feel they could speak up. And now you can help build that. And I do have a podcast episode about building psychological safety with your team, episode number 76. And I recommend you check it out. What if the failure is due to the work being impossible? Well, you know, I have some stories about this back in the 90s. I worked for some of the old AI companies who were pitching solutions to problems that were impossible to solve, at least with the technology of that day. My company's product seemed to be the best for solving these kinds of problems. Unfortunately, they were still impossible. So our customers failed, and of course, we failed. That just is the way that things happen. If you're trying to solve an impossible problem and you've committed to customers that they can do it, they're going to fail, and you're probably going to fail as well. Now, impossible is situational. As I mentioned, in those days, those problems couldn't be solved, but it's possible that with current technology, they could be. Something might be impossible for your team, but there might be another team that can execute on it. But usually they don't work for you, unfortunately, so that's a challenge. So you have some options there. If, the, if it's a, really a matter of learning, you can work with the team to learn that thing, to make sure they learn it. Uh, ideally before they commit to <laughs> to executing on it, right? That's a possibility. Or you might just have to recognize that, oh, we can't build this thing because it's not possible for us, or it might not be possible in general as well. And this is why in my rubric for product features, which I also mentioned in that episode about the motivation piece, I include the concept of bounded, meaning that the feature, even if we don't know how long it will take to build, it's, we are confident that it's a bounded amount of time. And that not only means that it can be completed in a reasonable time frame of some kind, even if we don't know what it is, but that it can be completed. In other words, that it's not impossible. Luckily, impossible is almost never the reason the team is failing. It's usually motivation or overwork. Those are the really the most common reasons that a team is going to fail. So what are the things that you can start doing today? I've given you a little bit of analysis. How can you start helping your team get out of failure mode if they're in, or prevent them from going into failure mode in the first place. Well, as I said, motivation is very important. You need to get your team motivated to build the things you want them to build. And the goal is for the team to be moving as fast as it can. Again, its velocity is only what it can be, in, but in the direction you want it to go. That's the fundamental thing. To get them pointed that way, you have to motivate them on the importance or value of what you want them to build. 
and then you have to turn them free, um, getting to that place. Secondly, you need to have some early warning systems in place to detect situations where the team is facing overwhelm or facing overwork, either by a feature that's much more challenging than expected or that requires technical skills or knowledge that they don't have, or where they simply take on more than they can handle. And that is partly your job as a product manager to keep a watch on that. There's other people that should be looking out for this as well, but not everybody is as aligned with success as you. <laughs> Some people are more aligned with committing to other people that they're doing stuff, even if they can't do it. And this is just a reality of life. So third, build psychological safety in the team so they'll feel safe in coming to you with their concerns about what they're working on. It's far better to have a team that's failing but communicating with you about their issues than to have a team that's failing but they aren't able to tell you for fear of retaliation. You need the team to be able to come to you with their concerns without fear of reprisals. So those are some ideas about how to deal with a team that is failing and what you might do about it. There's, I'm sure there's a lot more to say about this topic. More, a lot more than I can put into a whatever 15-minute podcast episode. But hopefully these are some ideas that you can make use of on a day-to-day -day basis. Hopefully not a day-to-day -day, day -day basis, actually. Hopefully on a, a rare basis, but when you need them, you'll listen to the podcast episode and you'll have some idea what to do. You've been listening to episode 142 of The Secrets of Product Management. If you enjoyed the show, if you want to share it with your friends, you can go find it and links and things like that at secretsofpm.com slash 142. That's the show notes and everything else. You can also subscribe to the podcast there. It's always great to have subscribers. If you have any questions or comments, you can leave them for me on the show notes page at secretsofpm.com slash 142. Or you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Happy to connect with anybody who listens to the podcast. Do mention that that is why you're reaching out to me because it always helps me to know who people are when they reach out to me. I love that. And I think that's it for today. Until next time, this is Nolte Davis. Bye-bye.